When I think about First Church, I think about a people who love Jesus and love like Jesus. Sometimes people wonder why we do what we do, why we give so generously, why we love those everyone else avoids, why we seek those everyone else ignores, why we dance when no one else hears the music, why we stick together when everyone else is so divided, why we show compassion in a world full of injustice. The answer is simple. It's because of Jesus. He's changed the way we see everything. He's the reason why we live. The answer is simple. Jesus is why. Welcome to First Church. Out of all the places you could be this morning, we're so excited that you chose to be here and worship with us. If you're new here, my name's Chad. Welcome. And we've got family right now meeting out at Stone Canyon, as well as others who will be joining us later online. So if you would, put your hands together. Welcome them into our time of study here today. It's pretty well known around here that I'm a basketball fan, and I'm especially a Kentucky basketball fan. And what that means is one of my favorite places to be on the planet is Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky. That's where the Cats play ball, and I've been going to games there since I was a little boy. I've been to dozens and dozens of ball games there. I love going there and being with 24,000 of my closest friends. It's a lot of fun. And if you're a basketball fanatic, you need to go and go to a game at Rupp Arena at least once. And so you can imagine how excited I was a few years ago when Alice and I were still dating. Well, it's been more than a few now, but many years ago when Alice and I were still dating and she called me up on the phone and she said, hey, Chad, I got us tickets in a few weeks to go to Rupp Arena. And I didn't even let her finish because it was basketball season. I was excited. I was like, yes, this is awesome. I am dating the best girl ever. I was like, what game are we going to? And she said, no, no, no. We're going to Rupp Arena to watch Disney on Ice. And I thought, what? Isn't that like for little kids? I mean, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, it'll be fun. It'll be great. And so I went. And here's a picture of Alice and I at Disney on Ice. We were still in college. We look a lot younger then. But if you can't tell, I am forcing a smile because I really didn't want to be there. And I felt awkward the entire day, uncomfortable, just out of place because we were the only people there our age who didn't have kids with them. And so I'm looking around. I'm seeing all these little girls in princess dresses and boys in Mickey ears. And I just felt so uncomfortable. But again, I was there because Allison wanted me to be. And so we went and we took our seats. And we had pretty good seats. Allison got his good seats. I would have loved to have had those for a basketball game. But we were there for of course, other purposes. And so we sat down and this guy came out on the ice in a costume and skates. He was kind of the MC for the show. And he came out and got the whole crowd pumped up, ready to go, excited. And then he said, before the magic of Disney can begin, I want everybody to stand up with me on the count of three, shout out, bibbity bobbity boo and I just thought, there is no way on earth I'm going to stand up and say bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Not happening. But I look around and all these kids are on the edge of their seats ready for him to hit three and stand up and shout out bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. I look over to my left and there's my future wife, Allison, on the edge of her seat ready to jump up and shout out bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. And so the entire arena goes quiet and the guy starts to count. One, 
two, and before he even gets to three, Allison jumps out of her seat and shouts out loud to the top of her lungs, yabba dabba doo! And I thought, what in the world? I don't even want to be here. I told her that. I don't even want to be here, but I know that we're at Disney and not in Bedrock with the Flintstones. And after I said that to her, she looked at me and had this really sad expression on her face. And she said, you don't want to be here? And I was just like, why would you think I would want to be here? This is a little kid thing. This is not my deal at all. Why would you think that I would enjoy something like this? And she looked at me and said, because you're here with me. And I thought, oh no, I have just blown it big time. I said the wrong thing. And so for the rest of the day, I bibbidi-bobbidi-booted up with the rest of them. You know, I was into it for the rest of the day. Put that smile on my face. I don't know what expectations you had when you walked into this room today, but I'm here to let you know something. You didn't walk into a boring, stoic, somber, religious ceremony. I want to let you know what you walked into today is a party, a party that is as big as the cosmos itself, a party that God is throwing, and he's throwing it in your honor. And this party, it started some 2,000 years ago with seven little words. You know what those words were? Jesus is not here. He has risen. Those seven words changed everything. They changed the world. They changed the course of human history. Jesus is not here. He has risen. Those words are simple, but they are utterly profound. He is not here, meaning he was here. He was dead. He was in the grave, but he's not here anymore. And if he's not here anymore, if he's not in the grave anymore, that can only mean one thing. He's alive. And that's why we're celebrating today. Because what God did for Jesus some 2,000 years ago on this day is what he also wants to do for us. Jesus' resurrection is also our resurrection. Jesus died for us. He paid the penalty of our sin. He stood in our place. He defeated death so we could experience life. Jesus defeated death so we could experience life. And that's why he says in John 10 verse 10, I came to give life. This is a purpose statement. I came to give life, life in all its fullness You see, Jesus doesn't want the things of this world that keep us feeling dead on the inside holding us back. He doesn't want the weight of your divorce, the pain of your past, the burden of your bankruptcy, the heaviness of your addictions and your past mistakes weighing you down, robbing you from life. No, He knows that you were created for more than that. He came so that we could feel alive again so that we could be alive again. Jesus defeated death so we could experience life. And I don't believe there's a better passage of Scripture that illustrates that truth 
than a little story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look with me Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to be today. And the story that we're going to look at that Jesus told is commonly referred to as the story or the parable of the prodigal son. And this isn't your typical Easter scripture passage. I get that. I understand that. But I don't believe that there's a better passage that illustrates the heart of God and why Jesus came. And even though I've studied this passage numerous times, I've preached on this passage numerous different times. Every time I go back to the details of the prodigal son, I learn more about me. I learn more about people. I learn more about the heart of our God. So that's where we're going to be. And the circumstances surrounding the telling of this parable are pretty simple, actually. Jesus is about six months out from going to the cross, and he's hanging out with some, well, some pretty broken people, some wounded people, some people who've messed up their lives. And here's the thing. There's some self-righteous people in the same community, some religious people who don't like the fact that Jesus is hanging out with riffraff like that. They're upset about it, and they're gossiping about him and talking about him. So in response to their criticism, Jesus tells this little story, Luke 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided up his property between them, his two sons. Now let's pause there for a second. Historically, we've referred to this passage as the parable of the prodigal son, singular. But Jesus, as he starts off telling this story, lets us know that this is a story about a father who had two sons. And one day, the younger of the two comes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I know you're not dead yet, but I want you to go ahead and liquidate your assets and give me my money now. In other words, what this son is saying, Dad, I love your stuff. I love your money more than I love you. I wish you were dead so I can go ahead and get my inheritance. Can you imagine what an insult that would have been to his father? And here's the thing. In this day and age, in the first century world, that would not have been acceptable. It probably wouldn't be acceptable in our day either, but it definitely wasn't acceptable in this day The father would have had the right to have his son punished because of his rebellion. He could have had the son arrested, beaten, even thrown in prison for such a request. But you know what? The father doesn't do that. You know what he does? Verse 12. It says, so he, the father, divided up his property between them. He grants the son's request. That would have been unheard of. No respectable Jewish father in the first century world would have done that. And not only that, the community community that they lived in would not have allowed the father to do this. They would have shunned this boy for his rebellion until he publicly repented of disrespecting his father in such a way. But Jesus is letting us know that this father, this dad, is different. He grants the son's request, gives him his inheritance, and lets the son go. Now, anytime I study this passage with a group of people, the same question always comes up. Why did the father do this? I mean, he didn't have to. He could have, in this day and age, forced his son to stay on the estate. He didn't have to grant the request. Why did he do it? Well, the answer is kind of simple. This father, he wanted a meaningful relationship with his son. And he knew that by forcing his son to stay on his estate, that would just drive his son further away from him. 
He knew that the son had to want to have a relationship with him in order for their father-son relationship to be made meaningful. And you know what? That mirrors the heart of our heavenly father, our God. See, God... He wants to have a meaningful relationship with you. I know there's a lot of misinformation floating around about God in our culture today, but I'm here to let you know what the Bible says. The Bible teaches us that God's deepest desire is to have a meaningful relationship with you. And the biggest risk that God ever took was giving us a choice to love Him. The biggest risk that God ever took was putting the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden and giving us a choice. But God knew that only by wanting Him, wanting our Father, will our relationship with Him be meaningful. And so, like our Heavenly Father, the Father in this parable that Jesus tells, He gives His Son a choice. And what does the Son choose? Well, Jesus tells us. Pick up with me, if you would, in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So this son, he packs up all of his stuff, and he heads for a distant country to write for himself a new story. It's interesting to me that the word living that Jesus uses here in the Greek is where we get our English word biography. This son set out to write a wild story with his life, and that's exactly what he does. You just get on his social media accounts and you know exactly how he's spending his dad's money. He's hooking up with prostitutes. He's in and out of strip clubs. He's doing drugs and using a lot of alcohol. He's making weekend trips to Vegas. He's spending way too much money on cars that are way too expensive and clothes that are way too expensive. He's living it up, so he thinks. That is until the money runs out. And he's yet to realize that what he's chasing after, what he's seeking in this distant country, can only be found with the Father. Verse 14, Jesus continues by saying, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pies that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Jesus here is painting a vivid picture of just how low this son's life has gotten. See, for a first century Jew, there was no more disgusting, there was no more unclean animal than a pig. And now, this younger son is not only working with pigs and dealing with them day in and day out, he thinks that the pigs have it better off than him. He longs just to eat what the pigs are eating, but no one would give him anything. Now, I want you to think about this. When we started off this parable with Jesus, this younger son had everything in the father's household. And now, at this point in our story... He's left with absolutely nothing. And I just want you to know, I just want to be transparent with you. I've been there before. This story of this younger son, it's also my story. And you may not realize it yet, but it's your story as well. You see, God, our Father, 
He gave all of us life. But at some point along the way, we chose to rebel against him. At some point along the way, we thought we knew better than him. At some point along the way, we decided to chart our own course, do our own thing. At some point along the way, we didn't think that God had our best interest at heart. And so we took a different path than the path God wanted us to take. And we set off for the distant country and we sinned and sinned and continued to sin, not realizing how much we were messing up this beautiful life that our Father had given us. And some of us, for some of us, it took us to hit rock bottom for us to realize just how much we had messed up the life that our Father had given us. That's what happens to this boy. And you know, that's what happened to me. It took me a long time to realize that when we try to find what only God can give us outside of Him, what we get is nothing. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where they've said, you know, I thought if I just got that new job, then I would be content. Or I thought if I got that new house on that certain street, then I would be happy. Or if I could just have a relationship with that one person, then I would be satisfied. But I just ended up feeling more empty in the end. I thought if I just had that fling, then I would be happy. I thought if I just cut that corner, then I would live a more comfortable life. I thought that if I just gave into that one desire, then I would be satisfied and fulfilled. But I just ended up feeling empty in the end. That's the story of this younger son. He's hit rock bottom. Pick up with me, if you would, at verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, we've all been there before, haven't we? When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. I love that line that we read, verse 17. When he came to his senses, finally the cobwebs come down and the light bulb comes on. Finally, he realizes that he was created for more than the pigsty that he's been living in. Finally, he realizes that he wasn't created to live a life of reckless sin, but he was created to be recklessly loved by his father. Finally, he woke up and he knew that those guys that he'd been hanging out with and parting with, they didn't really care about him. He figured out that these women that he'd been sleeping with, they didn't really love him. And even the guys that he's working for right now, they didn't have his best interest at heart. The only time in his life when he had experienced the love that his soul was longing for was when he was with his father. And so he decides to change direction and steer towards home. But here's the problem. He's not sure if his dad's going to have him back if his dad even wants him back. And so this younger son comes up with this speech that he's going to give his father, try to talk his father into accepting him back, and he's, 
He's practicing this and he says, listen, dad, I know that I've upset you and I've hurt you and I've embarrassed the family, I've embarrassed our entire community and I know that I am not worthy to be called your son anymore. But if you would, just let me work on the estate. Let me serve as one of your hired hands. That'll be good enough for me just so I can be close to you again. And that line in verse 19, it breaks my heart. But listen to what he says. He plans on telling his father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, why does he say that? Because he knows what he's done. He knows the mistakes he's made. He knows the poor choices he's made. He knows who he really is. And he believes that at this point in life, he will forever be linked to what he's done. Let me ask, what about you? When you look at yourself in your spiritual mirror, what do you see? When you look at yourself in your spiritual mirror, do you see your past mistakes? Do you see the times that you've messed up? Do you see the hurt that you've caused other people, maybe that you've caused God? Do you see the labels that other people have placed on you, like divorced or cheater or liar? Do you believe the lies that Satan whispers in your ear, that you're just a loser, that you're worthless, that you're trash? Maybe you've bought into the descriptions that other people have given you like ugly, fat, stupid. When you look at yourself in your spiritual mirror, is this what you see? Because this is what this younger son saw. He thought for the rest of his life, As long as he looked at himself and examined himself, that's what he would see. He didn't think he was worthy to be his father's son anymore. And so he heads back to his father, hoping that his dad would just let him serve as one of his hired hands. And let's read and see what happens. Pick up in verse 20. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Can't you just picture this scene playing out? I mean, I bet every single morning this father woke up thinking, could today be the day that my long lost son comes home? And on that morning, this dad wakes up and he looks out his kitchen window and there he sees a figure in the distance and he realizes who it is. It's his son. And so he runs out the back door and takes off to meet his son. And he gets to his boy 
And his son begins to go through this whole spiel, this speech that he's prepared. Dad, I've really messed up. I've hurt you. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. And it's as if his dad isn't even listening. His dad embraces him. He throws his arms around him. And then Jesus says that this dad starts to kiss his son And what's interesting is in the Greek that word kiss is in the ongoing tense, meaning he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. This was not how a first century dad should act towards a rebellious son, but this dad doesn't care. I mean, men in the first century didn't even run in public, but he ran to get to his son because he has his boy back. And so this son continues to apologize and dad, I'm so sorry, I've messed up. Just let me be one of your hired men. And again, it's as if the dad isn't even listening. He calls for his servants. He says, bring my robe, put it on him. Bring my ring, put it on his finger. I want everybody to know that he's my son. Bring sandals and put it on his feet. Slaves go barefoot. This boy isn't a slave of mine. He is a son of mine. And then the dad says, Kill my best animal. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to throw a party. It's going to be the party of the century. And I want you to invite everybody that I know. Because everybody considers this son of mine to be dead. They think he's dead to our community, dead to this family, dead to me. But I am going to declare to the world today that he is alive again. Look at the words of the father in verse 24. For this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. They began to party. Don't miss this. That language there is loaded with imagery of the cross. You see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came and paid our price, the debt of our sin on the cross, so that God could declare us who were dead in sin, alive again and that's why today is a celebration because today declares to the world that those of us who are in Jesus are no longer dead but we are alive to our father and if we are alive to him then we're really alive you see you may look at yourself in your spiritual mirror and see your past and all the times you messed up and you're hurt and the labels that other play, others place on you and the lies that Satan says about you that's what you may see but here's the thing when you're in Jesus this isn't what God sees when you know Christ as Lord he sees that you're worth everything He sees you as his child who he loves, who he was willing to go to the cross for and die for. You're forgiven. You're his. You're loved. God doesn't see your past or your sin anymore when you're in Jesus. No, he sees the cross. Therefore, he sees you as alive again. Jesus defeated death so we could experience life. Jesus defeated death to remind us there's a robe and a ring waiting for you. See, God's throwing a party and you're invited. 
And what I've discovered is the only one keeping you from joining the party is you. Because this party is open to everyone, and I mean everyone. And I think that's why the story of the prodigal son ends the way it does. See, it should end here with the father throwing a party for the younger son, but it doesn't. Remember how Jesus started the story. He said, this is a story of a dad who has two sons. And in verse 25, it says, meanwhile, meanwhile, while the dad is throwing this party, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So the older son is out working in the fields. He comes in and he gets close to the house and he hears music and dancing. Don't tell me God doesn't like loud music. He gets near the house and he can hear the music from the party. And we would think that this son would go on in and say, this is great, my brother has returned. But when he finds out from one of the servants what's going on, this older brother isn't excited, he isn't ecstatic, he's mad. In fact, Jesus says he gets angry and he refuses to go in and join the party. Instead of going in and celebrating, he kicks rocks around and he mumbles under his breath and probably curses his dad. And this was a huge sign of rebellion. Guys, in this world, this was just as rebellious as the younger son who left. Because what this older brother is saying is, I am in total disagreement with my dad. I am protesting this celebration. I am protesting this party because I think my dad is wrong. And to do that would have been a sign of rebellion and he could have been punished for it. But instead of the dad punishing his older son, you know what he does? Jesus says he leaves the party, the father does, and goes out to meet his son. That's a theme throughout this entire story. The dad goes and meets his younger son while he's still at a great distance away. He goes and he meets the older son while he's protesting the party that the dad is throwing. And I want you to pay careful attention to what this dad says to his older son who's outside the party. Verse 31. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Did you catch that? He says, everything I have is yours. In other words, you're not going to get left out. This party is for everyone. This party is for the entire family. This party is for you. And you're upset because you don't, have a fattened calf to eat, it's in there for you to feast on. You think that this music and dancing is just for your younger brother? No, it's for you too. The only one preventing you from joining in the party is you. And here's the thing, we're left not knowing whether or not this older brother ever goes in and joins the party. And I think that's interesting, especially for this Easter Sunday, because Easter is a time of year when a lot of people come to church And they get a taste of who Jesus is and a taste of this party that God is throwing. But then they walk away and they never actually join in the party. They just continue to stand on the outside. Guys, Jesus died for you so that you could join in the party, so that you could dance the dance that is the resurrection. The only one keeping you from the party is you. When I was in college, there were some guys in my dorm that liked to prank people. And one of the pranks that they would play, I've shared this before, one of the pranks that they would play is they would sneak into someone's dorm room that was unlocked in the middle of the night. They would bring with them a boom box. For those of you younger people, that's a box that plays music. They would bring with them a boom box. 
and then a strobe light, and everybody would dress up in disco attire. And then in the middle of the night where the, person's, where the person was sleeping, they would turn on the strobe light, turn on the boombox, and they would start to dance. And they only had one rule. No matter how the person reacts when they wake up, just keep on dancing. So they started to film this because it was hilarious. Not saying I was ever a part of it, but still, it was hilarious. And so they started to film this. And on one occasion, they went into a guy's dorm, and he was a big old guy. He was like a football player in high school, just huge guy. And when they turned on the music and the strobe light and started dancing, this guy jumped out of bed and he was scared to death and he just started swinging. He was mad. He just started throwing punches. And in the video, if you were to watch it today, you will see that what he did was grab the person closest to him, which was this little short guy. And he grabbed this guy, he put him in a headlock, and he just started to pound him, just giving him one hit after another over and over again. But you know what? As you watch the video... This guy who was getting hit, who was in the headlock, you know what he was doing? This. As he's taking one hit after another, he kept on dancing. Only one rule, keep on dancing. Guys, in this world, we're going to take hits. In this world, we're going to get discouraged at times because of the way things are. Satan has a lot of power in this world. And this world has fallen. So at times... We're going to have some rough days. We're going to take some hits. But no matter what happens to us, no matter what anyone says about us, no matter what anyone does to us, no matter what Satan tries to put in our path, we have reason to keep on dancing. You know why? Because of Jesus. Jesus defeated death so we could experience life. Life with the Father. And we who have experienced that life, who are experiencing that life, we know that life with the Father is always, always better than life without Him. Come join the party that is the resurrection of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today and we thank you for sending your son Jesus, for him going to the cross, but most importantly, for him defeating death so that we could experience life And that invitation to join in the party that is the resurrection, the party of new life, it's open to everyone. And by everyone, you mean everyone. And so God, if there's anyone in the room today, anyone listening out at Stone Canyon who hasn't accepted you as their Lord and Savior, Father, who's still living in a distant country, Father, may they make the decision today to follow you. And today at 3.30, we're gonna have baptisms out on the back patio here at North Garnett. Father, I hope that if there's anybody in the room who needs to do that, who needs to join in the party, they'll be here at 3.30 to do just that. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us. We thank you that you saw us as worthwhile. We thank you for sending Jesus to die and rise from the dead. And it's through his name, our risen Lord, that I pray. Amen.